0: Design Matters is on summer break, but we thought it was a good time to repost some of our favorite episodes. This one was originally posted in March of 2016. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with photographer Brandon Stanton about his ongoing project, Humans of New York, and why total strangers open up to him. I think it's because
1: there is a validation that comes with somebody really taking an interest in your story. And for some people, their story's all they have. Here's Debbie
0: Millman. The portraits are arresting an elderly couple looking frail on a busy street. A young boy in an orange tie holding an enormous guinea pig. A man in a cowboy hat, tattoos covering every inch of his face. There are stories that go along with the portraits of love lost, of lives gone wrong, of dreams still being chased. Brandon Stanton is the photojournalist behind these images. His project began simply enough. He would walk the streets of New York City and capture portraits of strangers around him. He called his project Humans of New York, and it became a wildly popular website, blog, and now many books. He joins me to talk about how his snapshots of New Yorkers morphed into a serendipitous career. Brandon Stanton, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Brandon, I understand you've been obsessed or borderline obsessed with saltwater aquariums, the baritone euphonium, reading, piano, filming, the financial markets, New York City, and photography. What on earth is a baritone euphonium?
1: These are all examples of things that I got really passionate about and then dropped uh, which led to my mother telling me at a young age that I was never going to stick with anything because I had the habit of. of finding something and then being convinced that I was going to be the best in the world at that one thing. And so when it was first saltwater aquariums, I read everything about it. I saved up all my money, which was like $1,500 when you're a teenager, and then spent it all on a saltwater aquarium that I later neglected to the point where I had like four snails in there. And (laughs) I had had four snails that ate algae. And, you know, when you attend your saltwater aquarium, you're supposed to wipe the algae off the sides of it. And if there's going to be a metaphor or image to represent the deterioration of that obsession, it would be towards the end, you could only see inside of my saltwater aquarium through the streaks that those four snails had left (laughs) because I got really excited about it and then I moved on to something else. The euphonium is kind of like a small tuba. Uh, My friend convinced me to do it because the band needed a baritone euphonium. Again, saved up $1,500, bought the nicest baritone euphonium I could, then dropped it. So it's kind of how my mind works. And it's the cast of mind that I think made something like Humans of New York possible because I photographed every day for years, just every single day I'd go out there. And that takes a certain amount of obsession, I think.
0: You grew up in Marietta, Georgia, and I understand that when you were in high school, you were president of the Spirit Club. What's the Spirit Club? I had this vision of it being a cheerleading club.
1: President and founder of the Spirit Club. Oh, I don't want to make any
0: mistakes here (laughs) in my research. (laughs) Corrected. No, no, no,
1: no. no. I mean, we basically just cheered at basketball games. So you were –
0: it was a cheerleading team. Kind of. So were you
1: one of those guys that threw the girls up into the air? Cheerleading sounds a little feminine. No, not quite that. Um, (laughs) It was was, – we basically got everybody with a car at the school. And we met at a parking lot and we drove down the street at like five miles per hour and just pissed off all the pedestrians behind us. We had hot dog roasts. So So, would you
0: say this is the origins of your trying to Uh, make people
1: happy? I mean, make people happy. I think it's the
0: origin of my wild schemes, maybe. (laughs) You majored in history at the University of Georgia. At that point in your life, what were you hoping to do when you graduated? I don't
1: know. I just loved history. I mean, because I flunked out of school. I was going to University of Georgia and I was kind of majoring in business because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Flunked out of school, started going to community college, which I'm very passionate about community college because community college was where I really started to appreciate education. I went to a place called Georgia Perimeter College. And I was sitting next to, in class, a teenage mother, um, somebody who was working at the factory that night. These were people who really were sacrificing a lot to try to get an education, where when I went to the University of Georgia, these were people who education was pretty much a rite of passage. It was something that was expected. And so to kind of start over at this point and realize that, you know, how desperate people were for education. It kind of gave me a new appreciation of it. And I started to educate myself on my own. I started to read 100 pages a day. And most of it was biography. Most of it was history. It's what I was interested in. And so I decided to go back to school and study for something for no other reason because I was interested in it. And history was what it was. And I'm still interested in history. I was reading a biography of George Washington before I stepped in the studio.
0: Yeah. In your Reddit Ask Me Anything post experience, I'm not exactly sure what to call those entities, you stated that you remember when you were in high school, you were extremely social. You could talk to anyone. And when you went to college, you went through a bit of a depression very early on and withdrew into a shell. What happened? Marijuana maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I got
1: I mean I really got introspective. Uh <laughs> I thought you were going to say
0: I really got into marijuana.
1: <laughs> well that too. I mean I think they kind of went hand in hand. Um <laughs> I say that there was some development during both phases of my life in uh in in various ways.
0: But you stated when you started going out again, when you came out of the Depression, you noticed that you'd gotten really awkward with other people. Why do you think that happened and how did you finally get comfortable talking to people again?
1: Because I think being social, that's one thing that I kind of learned um, is that being social is a learned skill. I think, you know, I'm remembering now the context in which I said that in Reddit is somebody was asking me for advice on how to talk to other people. And, you know, in high school, I was starting all these clubs. I was, you know, student government president, homecoming prince, whatever. Founder
0: of the Spirit Club. Founder of the Spirit
1: Club. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, But I was like a very social person and I always kind of assumed that this was some inherent quality of me. I was just an extrovert. I was social. That's who I was. And then when I went through more of an introspective phase where I was reading a lot, I was spending a lot of time alone. Then when I started to re-engage with the world, I did find that I was kind of awkward in certain situations in a way that I had never been before, and that's what made me realize that being social like anything else, talking with people, communicating with people is something that can be developed just like any other skill like algebra or spelling. And, you know, extrapolating that to humans of New York, it's the... Approaching people thousands of times, you know, I was so scared when I first started doing it. I was just terrified to approach a stranger. I didn't know if it was something you can do. Now it's second nature. You know, talking to people, approaching anyone is something I don't even think about. It's not something that I have to kind of build up courage to do. It was a earned skill. And I think that's what I was talking about in that Reddit AMA. Somebody was asking me how to get better at talking to people,
0: and I just said, do it. You said that you forced yourself to do it. So you literally had, in the same way that you told yourself you needed to read 100 pages a day, right. did you force yourself? Was it a um, conscious decision to go out and do this and learn to do it fearlessly?
1: Well, you say force yourself. I put it in a framework that basically forced me to do it, is that I said I was going to photograph 10,000 people on the streets of New York City. And so in that way, yes, I did force myself, too, because in order to attain that goal, I had to approach 20 or 30,000 to get that number. And so, yes, it was a very systematic, replicable process of going up to strangers every single day and asking for their photographs.
0: During your senior year of college, you took out $3,000 in student loans and bet it all that Barack Obama was going to win the presidency. What made you so sure he was going to win? I'm realizing when you're asking all these questions, like, man, I, all this stuff's on
1: the internet. When did I say all this stuff? <laughs> it's like, I didn't know there was this much information about me on the internet. <laughs> way to find it. Um, so I was I was volunteering in 2008. I was very, very passionate about Barack Obama the same way I was passionate about a baritone euphonium. I was reading. <laughs> I would go to Real Clear Politics every single day and I would read all 10 articles about him every day. Every single day. I was just I was volunteering for the campaign. And there was a point where I was convinced that he had the Democratic nomination wrapped up. Yet Vegas still put him at a 70 percent chance. And so I took out three thousand dollars in student loans, which was all I could get
0: at the time. So you would have taken more. Would have taken as much as I
1: could um, and bet it on him to win the presidency. And then I told that story to somebody who worked in finance in Chicago that was a friend of mine. And that's how I got a job as a bond trader, even though I was a history major, just because I did that. And he said,
0: hey, you're the kind of guy we need. So. so you got your Series 7 and moved to Chicago? No, I
1: didn't get my Series 7. <laughs> You'd be surprised what they let you do with no training. Really?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: A couple guys who had been very successful at trading. And so they hired a lot of young, smart kids. We would watch the markets and then buy and sell based on a strategy that we had that they taught us.
0: Wow. And yeah. you did this for two years. Two did years. you like it?
1: Oh I loved it. That's one of my obsessions with markets. It's so exciting. And I'm still like ooh, it's just like crack. I mean, I can still like feel the and I even <laughs> I even got back into it um, when? from my iPhone not too long ago. I, like, uh, I started buying oil futures, and I was doing it. That's smart, actually. This is while I'm doing Humans of New York like a year ago, and I could start feeling myself getting back into it again. I'd be interviewing people on the street. I'd be checking to see what happened. And I've got to get out of this. I've got to get <laughs> out of this. It's very addicting. It's very exciting. It's very engaging. It's very stimulating. Yeah, it is, uh, it is something I enjoyed. But I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore also.
0: After two years on the Chicago Board of Trade, you were fired from your job. You've said it was because you were taking too many risks and pushing too many boundaries. I think that's the best possible reason to get fired from anything. Uh, (laughs) What kinds of things were you doing?
1: Oh, well,
0: again, it's just like, gosh, it's on the internet.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, no, 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 no. Um, we were taught to trade within, you know, very certain parameters. And at any given day, if you're down a certain amount of money, there's, you know, risk parameters that you need to get out of everything and you can't basically double down on your position Hoping it comes back and thinking if it comes back, you're going to make it up. You can't make decisions like that. Um, That is what it looks like to take too much risk.
0: Were you upset that you got fired? Did you feel that it was destiny calling? Well, it's that's kind of the
1: starting point for humans of New York is because like during that time when I was working as a bond trader, all I was thinking about was the markets. I was just obsessed with it. But you know, I didn't view myself as somebody who just wanted to make money. That wasn't my personal identity. You know, I viewed myself as a creative person who was going to build this cushion of security and then make a pivot um, and then do creative things that I loved. So I'm just Sounds gonna familiar, make- Brandon. Yeah, I'm gonna make my money first and then I'm going to pivot. And so, you know, during those two years, once I finally lost my job, I looked back on those two years. And I'd lost that time and I didn't have any money to show for it. And so I thought, you know, more than my physical time that I needed, I needed mental time. I needed freedom of the mind to kind of do things that I wanted to do. And so I was so afraid of getting fired. And the day that I got fired, it was strangely a relieving day because suddenly I had all this thought energy and I could start thinking about, like, what do you really want to do? And it really just kind of opened up my mindset And
0: it was through that thinking that the idea for Humans of New York eventually emerged. In 2010, you bought a camera and started taking photographs in downtown Chicago on the weekends. And in your first book, Humans of New York, you stated, every Saturday and Sunday I'd take my camera into downtown Chicago and photograph everything. If I found something especially beautiful, I'd photograph it from 20 different angles, just to be sure that I'd end up with one good shot. I'd return home each night with over 1,000 new photos. How often did you get a good shot in those thousand photos?
1: Well, you know that was the the process I would find something to photograph, and that's how I taught myself to photograph i you know a lot of people still might say that I'm not a good photographer, but what skills I do have, the way I got it is that I would find something I wanted to photograph, whether it's street sign or graffiti or whatever, and I would photograph it 20 different ways from 20 different angles because I had no idea what I was trying to do. Then I would go home and I would look at those 20 shots and I would choose my favorite one. And through that, I started to learn what it was that my aesthetic was drawn to, what it was that I enjoyed. And so next time I'm not taking 20 photos, I'm taking 15 because I have a little bit more of an idea than 10, then 5. And, you know, even when Humans of New York started, I used to drive people crazy because I was still kind of in that mode of not knowing exactly how to photograph. So I would just take a bunch of photos so I'd make somebody stand there forever as I photographed them from all these different
0: angles. And yeah, that's how I taught myself. So you're completely self-taught. Right. And you said that there are still some people that might think you're not a good photographer. Right, right. Does that bother you?
1: No. uh, I kind of take a little bit of a pride in it, you know, because obviously Humans of New York is so successful. And, you know, the fact that I'm not that technically proficient, I think, shows that it is something deeper than some sort of technical proficiency that that makes it very powerful. And I view Humans of New York as storytelling, and I view the photography as subservient to the storytelling. The photography is only necessary to the point where it helps to tell the story that I'm trying to tell. And so, you know, when I, you know, kind of take that as my identity and someone, you know, criticizes my photography skills, it's very easy for me to shrug off.
0: Going back in time a little bit more again. At this point, when you were taking your thousand photographs a day, you made a decision to pursue photography full-time. And I know your mother was not happy about the decision Um, You've written about how your parents thought you were crazy, that there were several awkward phone calls during that time and how your mom didn't try to hide her disappointment at all. How did you deal with that? Did you feel like you were letting them down? Did you feel even more determined to make it? What What was your sense of that disappointment from them?
1: I mean, nobody was really supportive of Humans of New York. I mean, look at the facts. I had only been photographing for about two months when I decided to become a photographer full time. I told people that I was going to move to New York. I was going to do a project where I was going to stop random people on the streets and I was going to take their photographs. And somehow that was going to be a success. So, you know, I think when I became a bond trader, you know, my mother especially thought, okay, finally, this is over. You know, he's on a a firmer ground. He's on a a more adult trajectory. And then when I dropped that and started over again and moved to New York, where I didn't know anybody to be a photographer, which I'd only been doing for about two months, I think her mindset was, here we go again.
0: Prior to starting Humans of New York, when you left Chicago, you repeated your process of taking thousands of photographs in Pittsburgh. Um, You created a Facebook album on your personal page called Yellow Steel Bridges. You then went on to uh, Philadelphia and you named that album Bricks and Flags. You then decided to visit New York to spend what was supposed to be a week in the city before going to the West Coast. Right. You've written about how you felt the moment your bus emerged from the Lincoln Tunnel and you saw the city for the first time. And if you were taking a photograph of that moment now, how would you describe it as a photograph?
1: Well, just to recap what you said, after I got fired and I wanted to photograph, I traveled to a few different cities just to do street photography. In each city I went to, I'd create an album and name it after my first impression, Pittsburgh was yellow steel bridges, Philadelphia was bricks and flags, and New York was just supposed to be a stop on that trip around the country and Then I got to New York, and like you said, I remember the bus coming out of the Lincoln Tunnel. I remember I looked down on the sidewalks and you just you don't see it anywhere else, even in Chicago it was just that that mass of people just that I think it was rush hour, just that mass of people on the sidewalks and I'd started taking these pictures of people, you know intermittently in these cities that I was traveling. I was starting to gravitate towards these pictures of people. And then I look down and I see all those people. And I think to myself, this is a very natural fit for the type of photography that I am gravitating towards. And then I think three days later, you know, I'm walking down Broadway. And I'm thinking, you know what? I could take 10,000 photos of people on the streets of New York City and plot them on a map of the city. And that would be a very interesting project.
0: Why did you want to create this interactive map of the city and why 10,000 people? I
1: mean, I was just looking for a way to photograph all day long because remember, I spent two years thinking about nothing but money and I came out of that saying, you know, I now want to make just enough money to where I can do exactly what I want to do all day long and support myself.
0: How did you support yourself in the beginning? I read that you were eating cat food. Well, that was an exaggeration. <laughs> it was not,
1: not, not, that's what I told people I was eating cat food. It wasn't exactly eating cat food. Um, Tuna fish. Um, I had uh, $600 um, coming in every two weeks from unemployment benefits. Um, and that was that was enough to maybe pay my rent and eat about two meals a day. And so I lived in a room in a sublet in bed which just had a mattress on the middle of the floor. There was no furniture, nothing on the walls. Didn't go to bars, didn't go to restaurants, didn't go to movies, didn't go to anything. All I did was photograph. So that, mixed with a few odd jobs, mixed with some loans from my friends, was enough to keep me afloat for about a year and a half.
0: I read that you didn't want to think about spending money, you wanted to think about how you were spending time. Yeah, I love that.
1: That was kind of what the whole bond trading experience made me realize is just the value of time as a resource. You know, I think so much we're oriented to think of time as a means of accumulating, not just accumulating material things, but accumulating Degrees or extracurricular activities or things that will look good in the job interview. And we and we view our time as a means to accumulate things that will help us reach our ends. And you know, stepping back and looking at time as a resource itself, and not only a resource itself, but the most valuable resource you have is just what you do with your time. And say, okay, I'm going to put that front and center. And I'm going to not try to use my time to structure life, but I'm going to put time front and center and try to make the decisions that are necessary to where I completely own my time.
0: Your friend Mike Schaefer convinced you to start a separate Facebook page for Humans of New York as opposed to continuing with it on your personal Facebook page. And that's really the line in the sand when things changed for you.
1: Facebook, yeah. I mean, Facebook built Humans of New York, uh, really.
0: And And it's what you're up to, 16 million followers? Is that right?
1: 17 million followers on Facebook, about 5 million on Instagram. But it was – Instagram came later. It was really built on Facebook. And it was really dovetailing at the perfect time when Facebook was just starting to kind of roll out these pages um, in addition to personal profiles where you could post material outside of your username. And so, you know, I just started this page and I started – because I've been posting these photos to my website every single day and I basically just started posting them to both my website and Facebook. And all the interaction, all the growth, all the people that were interacting with my work were doing it on Facebook. Nobody was going to my actual website. How did people find you? Facebook. Just through – The mechanics of it. Google is good for letting people find what they're looking for. Facebook is good at helping people find what they don't know they're looking for. Humans of New York was a very new concept. People weren't Googling guys stopping random people on the streets of New York City and asking them questions. So what Facebook would do is it would introduce it to people through their news feeds based on their friends' engagement with it. And so, you know, after putting this stuff on Facebook, I started noticing names of people interacting with my work that I didn't know, that weren't my friends, they weren't my cousins, they weren't people that were interacting with my work based on any sort of social obligation to me. And once I reached that point, I knew it was a success because the world is so big, you know, there's so many people out there just like that. And sure enough, we went from one new fan a day to five new fans a day to 10 new fans a day, to there was one three-day stretch, I remember, where we put on half a million fans in three days.
0: Amazing. Amazing. So you started first by taking photos of people, then you added captions, and now you've also included interviews, full-on interviews with people. And you've stated that you think there is a sort of paradox of seeing a picture of somebody that you do not know and that you've never met before and is a stranger to you. But at the same time, you're hearing a story or a quote from them that is very intimate and very revealing and maybe is indicative of something that they might only tell their best friend or someone very close to them. And I think that combination of seeing a photo of somebody that you know nothing about except for this one kind of very vulnerable or intimate piece of information is a very powerful combination. Brandon, how do you inspire people to tell you these intimate, vulnerable stories about the deepest part of who they are? Well, I mean, you ask one. (laughs) My shrink has been asking for years. I don't know if she's gone anywhere. Oh, really? (laughs) That's Uh, a whole separate podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, there's two things. It's one, you ask. And two, you accept that some people won't. The reason Humans of New York is so hard to replicate is because you have to be willing to do it over and over and over and over again until you find the person that's willing to share.
0: You said you have about a 65% success rate with people? I should
1: actually do a scientific study where I ask. I would say one-third to one-half say no. And when I say success rate, these are people who allow me to start talking to them. Then when I start talking to them and see my standard as I've gone on, has has gotten so much more difficult because I've interviewed 10,000 people now. A unique story is not what it used to be. To get a story from a person that I think is fresh, that I think is a new perspective, that I think is unique and will be interesting to my audience, that takes a longer time now. It takes a heightened level of honesty from the other person. So I would say one out of three people say no, but then once I get in the conversation – two thirds of the people who say yes will be comfortable enough with the process to give a level of honesty that will allow me to create interesting material. You know what I mean before I came here, I went out and worked, and you know I spent an hour in Times Square subway station dissecting a man's failed marriage from thirteen years ago, just doing the total post mortem on it complete autopsy. Guy had never heard of Humans from New York, had just met me, and we're just dredging up things that he hasn't talked about in a long time. And I think it's because there is a validation that comes with somebody really taking an interest in your story. And for some people, their story is all they have. Their marriage failed. They lost their job. You know, All they really have to offer is their story. And to have somebody coming up And asking you these questions that nobody else asks because it's not small talk. It's not what do you think about the Yankees? What do you think about the weather? What do you think about Donald Trump? It is what aspect of your marriage do you take responsibility for it failing? Okay, that's your side of the story. If I was to ask your ex-wife, what would she tell me that you did wrong? You know? These are very, very difficult questions. And do he, people
0: get angry with you when no, they, never, when you ask never, certain questions? No, never, never,
1: you know? And it's because they know that I'm just – if you come in, it's all about energy too. If I was to come in there and say, OK, next question. What do you think about your wife, you know? But when it comes from an energy of I'm really into your story, which I am, and what do you think your responsibilities were? If I asked your daughter why she's not talking to you anymore, what would she tell me? You know, if you ask in that tone of voice, it's coming from a place of curiosity as opposed to some sort of journalistic ambition to expose and, you know, then there's nothing somebody won't tell you. And, you know, my favorite interviews, which happen all the time, are when I talk to somebody for a long time about extremely personal stuff. And at the end, both of us are thanking each other. Because I've never heard somebody tell me what they've told me, and they've had never had somebody care enough
0: to ask what I ask them. Do people scare you with some of their stories? Do you hear things that frighten you?
1: That's a good question.
0: Um, there's a large range
1: of, you know, human experience. Uh, you know, there's a lot of racists out there. Um, But I mean... Here's what I say, and this might be going too far. I just went to five different federal prisons, and I interviewed 30 inmates. I think that the truth, and this is a dangerous line to draw because then you get into moral relativism. But I think the truth is always exculpatory. In what way? That if you dig down... Into why this woman strangled this 11 year old girl. You learn about her paranoid schizophrenia, which she didn't know was schizophrenia. She thought were people talking to her. And then, if you dig back even further than that, you find out about the uncle who raped her every night from the age of seven to 11. And you start realizing that these people are acting with the information that they had about the world, and they were speaking in the language that they knew. And once you dig down to that level, everything can be explained.
0: It's a very compassionate, very generous view of humanity.
1: And it's not a view that necessarily can be acted upon. Because there needs to be, and that's a, that's why I say, you know, it's kind of... Well, what is excusable, what is forgivable. Exactly, and you do need to draw those lines, you know? You had schizophrenia, I'm sorry, you killed somebody. That story was an actual story on the blog, and it goes on to where she actually got away with it. She killed a young girl and her mother because she had this paranoid break, and she ran to Jamaica, And actually was there for two years and she felt so guilty she turned herself in even though they weren't looking for her. So that was a real story on the blog. And that's one of the things that this prison series really opened up to me was the schism in America between compassion and accountability. And it is a schism that runs through every comment section I have where somebody admits something, you know, some guy was explaining the affairs that he had, this was a few days ago. And he talked about after twenty five years of marriage, he no longer felt important. They had five children. He didn't feel like a great man anymore. And then when he found somebody who made him feel like a great man, he chased that feeling. And whereas he should have recognized it was a feeling, he said, Let's get lunch because he wanted to feel more of that.
0: Yeah, it's like crack.
1: And he <laughs> he described it as catnip, yeah. And he was so articulate about it, you know, and then the comment section, you got half of them saying, you know, I understand that. Thanks for, you know, describing that. I'll be on guard for that feeling or I appreciate you articulating it. You know, these are things that we all feel. Then half of them said, you know, how's your wife, you cheating lug? You know what I mean? Like, I feel sorry for your wife, not you.
0: I think that people respond to things very much with their worldview front and center. Or about what happened to them. Right.
1: You know, I think a lot of them... Might be looking at this guy and seeing their ex-boyfriend or their yeah, ex-husband. of course.
0: They're, they're projecting into yeah. what they feel is right or wrong and that moral imperative that they carry with them. Right. The problem is, I think, when we start to assume that because we feel that way empirically, others should feel that way too. And this is the empirical view of the universe that everybody should follow. Yeah. And then we go to war.
1: Yeah, especially over parenting. i notice that a lot. Mm. Some of the biggest arguments on the blog – are when somebody's talking about their child and how they raise them. And there's, like, talk about people having, you know, moral imperatives, like worldviews. Like, in the minds of so many parents, there is only one right way to raise a child, and it's the way they're doing it.
0: And that's about fear, because their kids aren't grown up yet. So there's no way to be able to say, hey, here's the proof. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's talk about some of your activism. In addition to interviewing inmates in prisons, you've spent... uh, Two weeks collecting portraits in Iran. You, uh, following the April 2013 Boston Marathon bombings, you spent the week collecting portraits in Boston. Um, You began a 50-day world tour in partnership with the United Nations in 2014, where you collected portraits and stories, 12 countries, I believe. What are some of the common denominators you've discovered about the humans of the world?
1: Well... I kind of shirk away from the word activism. You know, I try not to. So in the course of Humans of New York, there was a time when I realized that Humans of New York was not photography. The reason that Humans of New York was as compelling as it was is because I'd approached 10,000 people on the street and I'd gotten to be just about as good as anybody else in the world at stopping a random stranger and basically creating this bubble of comfort in the street where I could kind of learn their story in a very raw and honest way. And once I learned that Humans of New York was that bubble, then I realized it really wasn't about New York. And then I could take that bubble with me anywhere. And I realized that the place that this bubble, that this sort of art form had the most palliative effect, was among populations that were feared. And I realized that because people were coming up to me on the street and saying, I was used to be so scared of that neighborhood. Until I saw honi the people who lived there, my mom was so scared of New York. She didn't want me to move here. I showed her the blog. And I realized something about telling these random stories of people on the street had a very, you know, palliative effect on people's fears. And so if it's going to be applied in an effective way that makes an impact, apply it to populations and demographics that are feared. So the first place I traveled was Iran. I've been to Iraq. I've been to Pakistan. I've been to South Sudan. I've done the Prisoner Series. You know, if you were going to say that a common denominator on people whose stories I choose to tell are demographics or people that people are scared of because they have negative stories coming out. And the reason I shirk away from the phrase activism is because I don't go to those countries saying I'm going to portray a positive image of this country. I go to those countries saying, I'm going to stop random people on the streets
0: and I'm going to ask them the same questions that I ask any random people in New York. Although I think you've written that the the people of Iran were particularly warm to you.
1: Well, that's one thing, you know, I always joke about with people I talk is that I've been to Pakistan, I've been to Iraq, I've been to Iran, I've been to a lot of places that are historically don't have the best relationships with the West or the United States. And there is no place that I have more trouble stopping people than New York City. (laughs) They say no to you more than anybody, right? And it's not even close. (laughs) It's not even close. Um, The thing about the Eastern cultures is that there is a culture that puts hospitality front and center as opposed to individuality. When you stop somebody on the streets of New York, it's who are you? Why are you getting in my space? Why are you taking up my time? Whereas in the East, there is more of a compulsion to help a stranger. I think in Iran in particular, I stopped over 100 people and only three said no. Even then, they did so very apologetically.
0: You have used your website and your awareness to help quite a number of different organizations, schools, people raise money. And when you went to Pakistan, you concluded your series by bringing attention to, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, pronounce this correctly, Sidiya Ghulam Fatima's efforts. Was that, was, that, was that right? Did I say it okay? I call her
1: Fatima. <laughs>
0: Fatima. It, to help 20,000 Pakistanis who are brick workers. What made that particular group a group that was important to your effort?
1: That might have been like one of the most least random stories that I've told. Um, I was in Pakistan anyway, and a young Pakistani-American journalist named Fazilit Aslam, uh, who's become a good friend of mine, hooked me up with a wonderful interpreter and fixer on the ground. And on my way to Pakistan, she sent me an email and said, hey, Brandon, you know, I know you're going to be busy over there, but I just want you to meet this one person. And she hooked me up with Fatima. And so I started learning about her work. You know, I became very attached to her and her purpose. And, you know, I realized that, you know, money that I raised on the blog, especially American dollars, would enable her in a massive way. And so I told her story while raising money for her. And I think we raised like two and a half million dollars or something like that.
0: How does it make you feel?
1: Uh, it's... I hate to say that I'm used to it, but it's – I mean the the audience is insane. I've got about 20 million people who follow me on social media. It almost sounds arrogant to the point of delusional to think that you can take a group of 20 million people and establish a culture – Or draw any sort of conclusions about that group because it's such a large group. It by definition should just be a completely random distribution of society. But the 20 million people who follow Humans of New York are some of the kindest, most public-spirited and compassionate individuals. Five million dollars crowd-raised in one year. We made a petition for a refugee who got denied security clearance to the United States, 1 million signatures, 72 hours. You know, these are people who care and these are people who show up and these are people who participate. And the reason being, I think, is that I say mean people just get bored with humans of New York. They come the humans of New York. We're not judging people. We're not making fun of them. We're not criticizing them. We're just hearing their stories. And I think if you're looking to do any of those three things, you get bored and you leave. And what's left is this massive group of people who is less cynical than the rest of the world, I think. More compassionate and more willing to step up and make a difference. And so when all of these crowdfunding campaigns raise over a million dollars, you know, at this point, it's almost just confirmation of what I
0: learned a long time ago, is that the people who follow Humans of New York are the people who show up. The last story I'd like to ask you about is one that happened just about exactly a year ago. Uh, this was your post on Honey On January 19th, I met a young man on the street named Vidal and I asked him to tell me about the person who had influenced him the most in his life. He told me about his principal, Ms. Lopez, and he explained how she had taught him that he mattered. Over the next two weeks, I learned the story of Ms. Lopez and her school, Mott Hall Bridges Academy. By hearing the stories of Mott Hall Bridges Academy students and educators, my eyes were opened to the unique challenges facing a school in an underserved community. Ms. Lopez taught me that before a student is ready for academic training, they must be made to understand that they deserve success, and that can be the hardest battle in education. Ms. Lopez always said there was no place her students did not belong. Recently, we received an invitation that proved just that. What was that invitation, Brandon?
1: So that was a trip that Vidal, me, and Miss Lopez um, were invited to the White House, and we got to go to the Oval Office and meet the president and even interview him for a small amount of time. Vidal helped me with that. Um, and so the picture you're referencing, I think, was actually doll sitting at the president's desk,
0: right? With the president in the photo, the trip concluded a two-week crowdfunding campaign on Honey, which raised $1.4 million for the school. Right. right. You also were able to take a portrait of President Obama. It must be quite a... Fulfilling experience. It was, experience full, it was, it was full coming full circle it after was. betting your three thousand well, dollars on and, his know, campaign. And
1: again, you know that that bet came out of a twenty-one-year-old kid. Who the whole reason I felt confident to you know make that bet was because I was so passionate about his campaign. And you know I think the Obama administration and President Obama have interacted with humans of New York several times. He commented on a photo that I took in Iran. He allowed me and Vidal and Ms. Lopez to go to the Oval Office and interview them. Um, He found the story of a Syrian refugee from one of my Syrian refugee series and invited the refugee to the State of the Union address and I was allowed to go with them and attend that. And so, you know, having – yeah, I kind of started from that place and then – and so quickly for Humans of New York to kind of reach a place and, you know, a level of influence where I had those opportunities has just been amazing.
0: Brandon, I think the level of influence is equal to the level of impact you've had reaching people's hearts. And I want to thank you for making the world a smaller – And a more compassionate place. Thank you for being on Design Matters today. Thank you very much. To find out more about Brandon Stanton and see his amazing work, go to humansofnewyork.com or you can find him on Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter and lots of other amazing places. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.